Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we tell stories and have conversations that meet at the intersection of race and real life. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because today we're listening back to one of my favorite episodes. For episode 27, we're having our final Rewind show. We're listening to my conversation with luxury travel blogger Carmen Sognovi. Carmen and I talk about the joys and challenges of traveling with a multiracial family. In other words, traveling when the people in your family don't match. And I'm saying don't match with air quotes. From carrying your passports even when you fly domestically to packing extra hair products, we cover everything from the serious to the silly as it relates to traveling while multiracial as a family. We also talk about why it matters for multiracial families to see themselves represented in travel-focused media and why travel is such a powerful teaching tool for our children. And finally, Carmen shares some of her favorite travel destinations for multiracial families. You might be surprised by her picks. I know I was. I do hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. And maybe you'll get some ideas and inspiration for an upcoming family trip you might be planning now. Maybe for spring break. Now, I do want you to remember that season four of the My American Melting Pot podcast launches in just two weeks on Friday, March 13th. Our entire season will be focused on the family. So if you enjoyed these last two Rewind episodes, you will love season four. Thank you, as always, for listening. And now, please enjoy the show. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I want to get right into this. So I thought about having this conversation way before Cindy McCain made headlines because I myself am the mother of three mixed-race children, and I am the Black wife of a man who presents as white. And when we travel, we often get funny looks. Sometimes people don't recognize the five of us as a unified group. There have been times in hotels when I would be checking in for the five of us and people would look to my husband and say, sir, we'll be with you in just a minute. And I'd have to tell them that we were actually all together. Sometimes when we're trying to get a taxi, my kids and I will stand back and my husband will stop this taxi driver. So... These situations seemed pretty trivial to me. I didn't know if this was worth having a podcast episode on. But then when Cindy McCain did what she did and brought this episode to the kind of mainstream media, more people started talking about their challenges of traveling as a multiracial family. Cindy McCain actually said that the reason she thought she was witnessing child trafficking was because, quote, the woman was of a different ethnicity of the child and it looked odd. That's what made her think that she was witnessing child trafficking right in the middle of the Phoenix airport. So there are so many other stories like this. It's not just me. It's not just Cindy McCain and the people she saw. I went to a Facebook group that I belong to of multiracial families, and I asked, are other people having these similar experiences? And I got so many responses. So... This isn't just an issue for me. This is not just an issue that Cindy McCain saw once. There are lots of different challenges that people who have families that don't look like they belong together because they are, quote, like Cindy McCain said, different ethnicities. And this really does affect how we travel. Carmen, as a travel expert and as somebody who has a multiracial family herself, why do you think in 2019 we still have these stories of people having these types of issues. It's so interesting because I had heard in passing about the Cindy McCain story, but I really just saw the headline. I didn't realize that it had to do with her seeing that a parent and a child were of different ethnicities. So that's kind of blowing my mind right now, to be (laughs) honest. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I feel like As a society, we're more used to seeing multiracial families or interracial couples, but it still seems like in certain situations or certain instances, 
we still tend to default to, oh, families should all look alike. And, you know, the situations that you mentioned, definitely getting the cabs, less so now in the age of Uber, but definitely when my husband and I were first dating, like in the OOs, I was always the one who stepped out to get the cab. So I can definitely relate to that. And then also the situation you mentioned where you're at a hotel, for us, it's usually at restaurants or retail stores uh, where I'm being helped or vice versa, my husband's being helped. And then they assume that the other one of us also needs to be helped separately. Like there's no assumption that we're together. So yeah, even though, you know, I think people are more used to seeing multiracial families and more quote unquote accepting of them. I think the knee jerk reaction is still to expect that a family kind of like they're all of the same color, quote unquote. So I think people still get a little startled when that's not the case. Yeah. And I think there's something about traveling where there's all these kind of checkpoint moments, right? Where in your own community, you know, walking day to day, you know, there's not really a reason, but you go to the airport and they're looking, you have to go through security and they're just looking for opportunities that things don't look correct. When you're getting on the airplane, you have to show your ID. You have to show that you are who you say you are. And I guess there's extra scrutiny. So that might explain why people are facing more instances of people's not believing that a person is in a family. That might be it. And it's not even families with kids. It also happens if you're in an interracial relationship. One woman wrote on this Facebook conversation that we were having. Her name is Laura. And she said, I'm white and my husband is black. Before kids, air travel folks were constantly assuming we were not together, telling him to wait when we walked up to have our ID and boarding passes checked. Our twins have actually lessened that as they clearly tie us together with our bags full of extra snacks, clothes, and activities. So oftentimes, if you have a black spouse, you know, there's this element of racism to it as well. I mean, there's this idea that if you are white or white presenting, why would you be with a black person, for example? And I feel like that's something to consider as well, that people still don't assume that if you are white presenting, that you would be with a black man or a black woman. And that's that's challenging and it's kind of demoralizing. Yeah, I, I think that absolutely is is still the case. And there's been a few situations we've encountered where I'm not sure it's necessarily the multiracial aspect of it that's been the issue, as opposed to the Black aspect of it. <laughs> so, you know, really, you know, us getting certain reactions because my husband and children are Black, as opposed to oh, you guys don't look alike. Sometimes it's hard to separate those two. They're very much intertwined if your family has, you know, one Black partner. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, though, you know, when you bring in this idea of like, well, obviously, you know, it's just racism, you know, it's just in general. That's all Black people, you know, experience life all the time, right? And this is very true, but it's not just... This is why this topic is so fascinating to me. And this is why I love having these conversations because... Sometimes I think it is a Black thing, right? I'm experiencing this. Our family's experiencing this because people just mistreat Black people in general. And my family members are like getting the residual effects of the fact that I'm the Black one in the family, right? But I also have received other people's comments. This is why I love social media because you can hear like all different kinds of people's experiences. But I had another woman who wrote to me. Her name is Neely. And she said she is white. And she said, my husband is Chinese, Indonesian, American. And she said one of the things that they experience is when they are traveling here in the United States where they live, she said on road trips, there is always a bit of anxiety about where we stop and we aim for bigger, more populated stops when possible. It is a bit nerve-wracking to find your family being stared at while getting gas at little roadside gas stations with Confederate flag-adorned vehicles. So this idea that a lot of Black people think, you know, traveling into small towns in the United States is dangerous, right? This was interesting to me that a woman who's in a multiracial family, white and Chinese, that she also feels that traveling in the South in the United States presents some kind of danger, is that surprising to you or do you feel like, especially as someone who, you know, pays attention to travel trends, that that's something people would be concerned about as a multiracial family, whether they're Black or not or Asian or something else? Yeah, I have to say I am a little bit surprised by that. But then at the same time, I think the fear makes sense, especially when you consider 
the history of race in this country. Certainly, white women's sexuality has been policed in a lot of different ways, but also specifically with regard to them entering romantic or sexual relationships with non-white partners. That's always been something that, you know, I think white women have been seen as possessions to some extent. So I can certainly understand that there would be some anxiety if as a white woman, you have a non-white partner and getting not necessarily the most favorable reaction to that all the time. So I think that there's a long history of racism in this country that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And it's not just anti-Black racism. It has existed on many different levels and in many different kind of iterations. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. And probably more now, more than ever, I feel like there's such a increased sense of racial hostility that anybody would feel maybe more uncomfortable traveling to smaller towns in certain parts of this country more than others. I wanted to also, though, take this out of the United States because it's not just in the United States where people traveling as a multiracial family might face challenges. And I want to, you know, I want to be clear, everybody, that the challenges aren't necessarily, you know, we're not talking about you're going to end up in a jail somewhere, but sometimes they're just challenges that present their own unique preparations. You have to be prepared because sometimes people will be confused by your family makeup or you have some other situations that you wouldn't have expected so that this isn't just a United States situation. I want to read this one example that somebody wrote. Her name is Fariba. And she says, my family is mixed Nigerian, Iranian, English, and Canadian. And we were traveling back from Nigeria to England and at the airport in Lagos. My husband actually had to tell me to stand back a bit because every single airport worker asked blatantly for a bribe because he has foreign wife. We couldn't even sit together, even though we had pre-booked seats, unless we gave a little something for, and I'm, she wrote this in this way, for your brother so I can get foreign wife like you. It was humiliating and disgusting. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that as an expert on bribes in Nigeria, but I just wanted to like point out that traveling as a multiracial family, even outside of the United States, this is not necessarily something that only happens in the United States, but that in other countries that being a mixed race family might create some situations that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were a monoracial family or maybe... I don't know. What do you think about that? And do you have any experiences or knowledge about traveling outside of the U.S. where being a multiracial family might cause problems? What do you think? This actually kind of reminds me of my childhood. So just as a little bit of background, I was born in Hong Kong. My mom is Hong Kong Chinese. My dad is Belgian. So he's from Belgium, but basically moved to Hong Kong to work and stuck around for most of his life. And so for a little while in my childhood, my dad got stationed to work in Shanghai, which was on mainland China. So this was pre-97. So in other words, Hong Kong was still a British colony. So a very separate world, essentially, from mainland China, which was and still is under communist rule. And this was in the early 80s when the China was first starting to open up to the West. And it's funny because certainly <laughs> airport bribes were just part of our regular travel experience back in those days. And the whole idea of having like a white or foreign partner and that changing your status is definitely a thing. So in Shanghai, my mom was already perceived to be different because she's from Hong Kong. So they would call that like Wakyu which is in Cantonese, that's like, you're an overseas Chinese. Like, you're not from mainland China, you're a Chinese-American, or you're from Hong Kong or Taiwan. Like, that's considered a different kind of Chinese and with a little bit more of sort of financial privilege, class privilege. But then the fact that she had a European husband and then these, like, rather white-looking kids then also definitely put that up another notch. So... Yeah, I do absolutely think that the race or ethnic background of your partner can cast you in a different light when it comes to what type of privilege you're perceived to have. So that I can definitely kind of relate to that. It brings back some childhood memories there. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Again, like I love these stories. I mean, I don't love the stories where people are humiliated. You know, I'm not suggesting that somebody else's pain or suffering is um, enjoyable. 
But it's just interesting to me how, like, again, this woman is Nigerian, Iranian, and you're saying that this reminds you of your own childhood in Hong Kong and China. You know, that in some ways, these shared experiences bond us together because we can relate. You know, it just gives us another way to relate to one another. Now, you said earlier that you and your family today, your husband and your two children, and you said your children are, you know, brown, right? That nobody's going to, you know, mistake (laughs) them for anything but brown. And you have this beautiful travel website. And you said you haven't had any really difficult experiences and you've traveled all over. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about the positive that you haven't had problems. Yeah, you know, I think we've been pretty fortunate so far. Um, And we've traveled you know, we've probably traveled more than some families, but compared to other families, we were really at the very start of our travel journey, <laughs> in, in my opinion, since we've just, we started the blog about three years ago. But so far we've been to Europe, we've been to Asia, we've been to the Middle East and, you know, a few different places around the U.S. domestically, of course. And we've been pretty fortunate. I think that I was a little concerned slash curious when I first started Top Flight Family to see how we would be received as a multiracial family, especially because, as you mentioned in my intro, our niche veers a little bit more on the luxury, the higher end of travel rather than budget travel. And so I was kind of curious to see, like, how would these higher end hotel brands, how would they feel about working with a family of color, specifically one where, quote unquote, part black as a family, you know, how that would play out. And I've actually been pleasantly surprised that it hasn't presented an issue for us. And I think if anything, a lot of the partners that we work with are somewhat relieved (laughs) to be able to work with us so that, because I do think a lot of travel brands and destinations are realizing that they really need to show more diversity when it comes to who is doing travel and working with us is kind of a an easy way to do that. Yeah, I think um, it like it's like we we checked off so many boxes with one family. Yes. <laughs> We're a twofer. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Um and we've talked about this before. I mean, the media in general is still quite lacking in ethnic diversity. You know, it's still most images you see tend to be of white people and particularly when you get into the higher end of things. But travel media is even more, is even less diverse, I guess I should say. So nowadays, when I first started Top Flight Family, it was a little bit different from how it is now. So originally I started it more as a magazine with multiple contributors where there would be like a lot of different families sharing their experiences. A couple years ago, I pivoted to make it more really just about our family. But in the early days, I would often have to rely on stock photography to illustrate articles and things like that. And one of the biggest frustrations to me was to find travel imagery that featured people who are not all white, particularly when it came to families. It was like you would think that only white families travel anywhere, judging by these stock photography sites. You know, you would like put in family travel or family vacation and everyone was like blonde hair, blue eyed. Everyone was wearing like a white bikini. There was so little diversity in just like the images. And if you think about how travel is marketed, the ads that you see that promote hotels or destinations, there's a lot of sameness in that. And you don't necessarily see people, you know, if you're a multiracial family like mine, you don't often see anyone that remotely reflects what you guys look like. So for me, it's been interesting and somewhat of a relief to see that it hasn't held us back. And I think that more and more travel brands and destinations are getting it. You know, they realize that we need to show a broader range of who's traveling. And, you know, obviously because of the topic of this podcast, we're primarily talking about like ethnic diversity, but same absolutely goes for like LGBTQ travel, you know, especially families. Like you don't see a lot of LGBT families being depicted in travel media. And so I think that's just one of many other areas where, you know, I think a lot more diversity is needed. You know, you just made me think also that sometimes the fear or the reticence to even go out and travel or in a very legitimate fear is because we don't have enough media imagery to suggest that you would be welcome someplace, to suggest that you're not going to be attacked by whatever the hate mongers of the day are, right? So 
you're actually doing a very big service for a lot of us, Carmen, because we need to see ourselves in these places before we take the step to go there. I mean, it's kind of a vicious circle, right? You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the reason we're staring at you is because we've never seen people that look like you traveling in these places, right? Or the reason that we don't extend the welcome mat is because we didn't know you did travel. And then people on the other side, you're like, well, we're not traveling to those places because we've never seen ourselves in those places and we didn't know we'd be welcome there. So I think it really makes a big difference to see top flight family, for example, and to look at those images and see you, you know, to see your family that looks like my family, that looks like this other family in places where, whether it's a luxury hotel or just a destination, that I just didn't think that applied to me because I never saw myself in those places before. Now, you started your online career at Race Delicious. Did you have some little bit of, you know, I am doing a little bit of a diversity service work here with this Top white family? Was that in the back of your mind? Of course. (laughs) Of course. You know, it's always there in like a guerrilla tactic kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) Once once you're in interracial justice, it doesn't really go away. So for sure. There underneath it all, there was for sure that little element of, you know what? You know, especially at the beginning, you know, when when I was really trying to have a lot of different voices on the blog. Like I really made sure to try to reach out to as many different kind of families of all types, of all ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, things like that. Because I really wanted to to show that, hey, you know, the families that travel are not just one kind, they're all different kinds. And just because it's luxury travel doesn't mean that it isn't just sort of like a retired baby boomer white couple I think that's sort of the typical luxury travel demographic that a lot of people think of when in fact there's families, there's people of color, there's LGBTQ families, you know, there's, it's just much broader than the images that we typically see. Yeah. So that's like a tip to everybody who's listening, who's part of a multiracial family. Take lots of pictures of your multiracial family on vacation and post them socially (laughs) so that the rest of the world can get used to the idea that families that don't all look alike are actually families and that we travel. And so when you see us out in the world, you're like, oh, that's a family. That's not five random people standing next to each other in a picture, coincidentally. I think that's really, really important that, you know, imagery matters. You know, seeing your your family group reflected in these different places makes a difference. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I just want to plug a friend of mine's project because it very much relates to this. Um, so plug a friend away. of mine, plug away. <laughs> Karen Apkin, um, she has this incredibly thriving Facebook group called Black Kids Do Travel. And essentially it's this community that she's built of black families. And some of them are quote unquote monoracial black, but there's certainly a bunch of mixed families in there too, including us. And it's really just um, very simple. The purpose of the group is just to share photos of trips that you've done with your kids. And then of course, there's also a lot of asking for advice. Hey, we're going here. Any ideas, you know, tips for going to this destination. But I think the reason that her group took off the way that it did is because there's something so powerful about seeing other families that look like you traveling to all kinds of destinations, whether it's taking a Disney cruise, whether it's going to Manhattan and spending a weekend there, or, you know, something more far flung, like going to Dubai, going to Hong Kong, going to Japan, going to Africa. And I know Africa is a continent, not a country, but... (laughs) going to one of the many countries in Africa. But it's a great community, a great resource. I definitely encourage anyone to join just for the sheer community and the information that you can gather there. But to the point that we were talking about earlier, it's really, really powerful to just see images of people who look like you or who look like your extended family traveling. Like it's such a simple concept, but just seeing other people doing it makes you so much more confident that like, wow, we can do this. This doesn't seem so far-fetched. They did it. They can talk about their experience, whether they felt welcome or not, you know, maybe certain things to look out for. But yeah, it's really empowering. And I'm very proud to be part of that community. And I love being able to kind of bring in a little bit more of the luxury travel angle to it. And, you know, people really dig it. Even families who maybe that's not necessarily the way that they travel, they really appreciate seeing that, wow, there's Black families on this side of things as well. So it's definitely really important. I agree. I agree 100%. And it plants a seed. 
I actually received an email not so long ago from a woman who read my memoir, Kinky Gaspacho, where I talk about traveling to Spain. And she actually said, I've never been to Spain. I don't speak Spanish, but I read your book and I would like to retire to Spain. So like, tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, think about the power of that. When you share your story, when you share that you've done it, it gives people the courage that they can do it too. And I think that that's really important. And that's really one of the definite benefits of social media is that we can control the narrative and provide a counter narrative to what's kind of, like you said, in a lot of travel media at this point. We don't see ourselves, but we can create alternatives to that. So I want to just jump to some ideas earlier before we actually got online. We were talking about, you know, some of the things that we do because we know that as a multiracial family, we may get stares or things might happen. And you mentioned that sometimes you travel, even if you're in domestically, you may travel with your kids' passports. Talk a little bit about that, like why you do that. And if there's anything else that you can think of that, you know, that you do because not because you're worried necessarily, but just because you, you know, want to make sure that if anything does come up, you're not going to be caught unaware as you travel with your family. Like you mentioned, I will very often travel with passports, even if we're going domestic. And part of that is just I'm very type A, so it's just kind of part of my personality. But the other part of it is, you know, it has crossed my mind that particularly if for any reason me or my husband are separated from each other in the airport and just one of us is with our kids, for example, I think it would be maybe a little bit more of an issue of me with the girls rather than my husband with the girls since they do have, quote unquote, black presenting hair. I don't think it's like a stretch for them to be like, oh, these are your daughters. For me, it hasn't really been an issue, but it does cross my mind that, hey, if there's any reason where I need to demonstrate that, yeah, these are actually my children, um, you know, so that Cindy McCain doesn't report me for child trafficking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's my new reason now. <laughs> um, that, you know, having the passports handy is useful. But then also, you know, to be real, immigration is very scary right now. Um, I am an immigrant, so I, for a long time, I had a green card and I recently became naturalized just in time to vote for Hillary Clinton, but that didn't work out very well. So I feel a little bit more secure to have my passport with me just in case of any kind of weird situation that comes up. Though, of course, I have also heard stories of U.S. citizens with their passports getting harassed anyway, so it's not really like a... A silver bullet either. But yeah, I mean, that that kind of explains the passports question. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, this sounds silly, but I'm going to, I'm just going to say it. So I'm a black woman who grew up going to the beach all the time. And I probably wore sunscreen like once or twice my whole life, which is not good. I understand <laughs> that. But I just did not grow up thinking about sunscreen. And then God gave me these three children with super pale skin. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot the sunscreen. And I have three children. They actually have three different skin tones. And I need to pack like three different kinds of sunscreen for my three differently colored children. Wow, really? I'm serious. And also, when we go to the beach, some of us can stay out longer than the others before the sun damage starts. And again, I know there's kind of protocols, like nobody should be overexposed to the sun. But there are some like things like that, even like being a family of different colors, different shades, you know, different hair products that we have to bring, you know, things that I have to bring for my hair that I don't have to bring for my kids' hair. Is there anything that you can think of that you're like, now that you mention it, when we pack or sometimes like, I have to do things a little differently than like from my husband or for the girls. Is there anything like that you can think of? Yeah. I mean, I think the two things that you mentioned, I can definitely relate to. It's a constant struggle with my husband where he's, I guess, fairly dark skinned and he's just always like, I don't need sunscreen at all. And I'm like, Everyone needs sunscreen. (laughs) It's like sun damage can happen to anyone. Like, yes, you are less likely to have a sunburn maybe compared to me, but it doesn't mean that it's not beneficial to apply it. So, you know, definitely with him, it's a struggle. Although he's starting to come around because he's actually gotten like a little peely, you know, on a couple trips recently. So I think he's realizing like, oh, okay, like maybe it's not a bad thing. But yeah, my daughter's... They have they have a very similar skin tone to each other, um, but their hair texture is very different, which is a whole other story. So with them, we're able to use the same sunscreen. I basically just put 
the super duper stuff I use on them as well. Um, although they probably don't need the SPF 50, but I'm like, ah, that seems to be the recommended. So everyone should just use it. Um, in terms of hair products, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think just hair in general is always something that needs to be planned for for us when we travel. And we have to kind of think about what kind of trip is it? And then what are we going to do with their hair? When they were younger, I kept their hair braided up most of the time. And a lot of that had to do with when they were little, they went to this daycare that was like super strict about keeping kids' hair braided, which is like a whole other conversation. But in their younger years, they would wear braids a lot. But in the last few years, I've been kind of easing back on that a little bit because I felt like it was a little bit damaging to their edges. And, you know, I felt like there was a lot of breakage and stuff near the front part of their hair. And so most days, my oldest daughter, Sean, will wear just like two pigtails. And then my younger daughter, I'll just do maybe like 10 twists on her so that it's kind of like her hair is, it won't get tangled up, but at the same time, it's not a very tight style that's going to like damage her edges. So typically, if we are going to a non-beach or a non-swimming kind of vacation, we'll just do the same way that they usually wear their hair. For example, when we went to Copenhagen this past October, and then also to we did a ski trip to Keystone, Colorado in December, they wore their hair just in the, the usual way that we do it. But next month, we're going to Dominican Republic, and that is definitely going to be a trip where there's going to be a lot of beach time, a lot of pool time. And so for that, I'll actually get their hair braided before we go because it's just so much easier. I don't have to deal with washing and detangling while we're on vacation because that's just not fun. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is not well, not when you're on vacation, you no, know. No, but this is real. Work. This is real talk, right? I mean, this is yeah. If you are a mom, let's say your mom with non-black hair and your children have black hair, traveling while multiracial means that you've got to make some preparations that you weren't doing for yourself. Like you don't have to go get your hair prepared for a week in the sun and the beach and the pool, but you very much no. have to do that for your children. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, again, if you're not in a multiracial family, you don't necessarily realize these are the kinds of I don't want to say them as challenges because it's not like a challenge. Just this is how you live your life. I mean, this is just what life is. But these are the different things that you are going to have to do that might be different than what how you grew up or particularly if you're in a transracially adoptive family. This is all very new to you. So traveling, these are just different things that you have to do that are different if you were not in such a family. And it's interesting because a lot of the comments on this Facebook group of multiracial families, a lot of the talk is about hair, not surprisingly. And so traveling with different hair textures and things is also something that you have to think about as well. So you just mentioned three very interesting sounding um, destinations. I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendations, both domestically and internationally, for multiracial families. And I know that this can be interpreted in many ways. You know, you could just say anything is great, but are there any places where you felt like being a multiracial family would probably not be that big of an issue. Maybe you would get less stares and you wouldn't necessarily have to deal with some of the kind of microaggressions you might in other places. Are there any like standout destinations that come to mind? So there's one destination that comes to mind and we actually haven't brought our kids there yet. But Serge and I, my husband Serge and I went when we were in our 20s when we were dating. And it is the only place in the world where people there assumed that both of us were locals. <laughs> wow. And Where is yeah. this magical place? <laughs> Panama. So Panama was one of my favorite trips that we've done. Um, I really can't wait to bring the kids there. But yeah, we went to Panama. So we uh, spent some time in Panama City. We also went to San Blas, which is uh, one of the outlying islands. And we also spent some time in the rainforest kind of area. That's not too far from Panama City. And we were kind of amazed that we were walking around and not only were there no stairs, but people would speak to us both in Spanish, sort of like not treating us like tourists. It was just like, oh, hey, what's up? Blah, 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 blah. And we were like, oh, okay. Like this is something that has never, ever happened to us before. <laughs> and just to, you know, I, I'm not a huge expert on Panama, but it is a very ethnically diverse population, mostly due to when they were building the Panama Canal, they brought in labor from a lot of different places, like from India, from China, 
and obviously, you know, the native kind of Indian population. So it's an interesting place. So yeah, that's one that came to mind immediately. I'm curious to see if we'll still get that reception when we bring the kids, but it was definitely interesting when we went back in the day. And I'm curious about your trips to the Middle East. How have those experiences been as a multiracial family? So far, we have only been to Dubai, so I don't want to overstate that we've explored all of the Middle East. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, I feel like Dubai is definitely kind of a easier way into the region kind of a destination since it's like such a international metropolis. But I think for me, we didn't really experience any particular, you know, microaggressions or, you know, it, was, it felt quite comfortable for us. Um, I feel like there's... It's such a huge tourism destination that people from all over the world come, lots of Americans of all different ethnicities. So I think people are used to seeing all types of people there. But the thing that was interesting for me was to kind of watch my daughters interacting with some of the local folks there and how they were like, you know, certainly we live in New York City where it's very diverse. There's a lot of hijabi women and things like that. But I don't think the girls have ever really seen the sort of Emirati men with the white gowns and the white headdresses. But that's something that's like very new to them that they'd never seen. And they were just like, yeah, no big deal. Like it wasn't like, oh, like, ooh, what are they wearing? Like there was not a lot of curiosity or surprise or shock. It was just like, oh, okay, yeah. And, you know, I remember we were in the elevator at one of the hotels we were staying at and... um like a, a nice Emirati gentleman just struck up a nice conversation with my youngest. And she was just like, oh, you know, they had a little nice conversation about the camel doll that she was holding. And it's just kind of amazing sometimes to see how kids, and this is why, you know, I'm so passionate about inspiring other families to travel with their children is that it's amazing to see how quickly your kids adapt and how resilient they are. I mean, not that there's anything particularly challenging about the situation I just described, but I think sometimes as parents, we worry like, oh, is this going to be too much for my kid? Or is this place kid-friendly enough? You know, are there amusement parks? If there's no amusement park, my kid's going to be super bored. And the thing is, like, kids are naturally curious, and I think they have a natural curiosity to their environment. And... You know, I think sometimes as parents, we need to broaden our minds a little bit about what constitutes a quote-unquote kid-friendly vacation or a family-friendly vacation. It doesn't have to involve cartoon characters. It doesn't have to involve amusement park rides. Just exploring a city can be super interesting for a child. When we went to Hong Kong, which, you know, as I mentioned, is my hometown, that was a, obviously a very special trip because it's the first time we'd brought the girls there. For part of the trip, we stayed at this Airbnb, which was on a street, which was essentially the whole street was a wet market. And wet market meaning like where you go to buy like fish and meat and vegetables and it's like literally very wet, like the ground, because people are just like dumping like fish, whatever, pig's guts and stuff all over. And I was curious to see if the girls would be really grossed out by that, but they weren't. And they were just like so fascinated by looking at the live frogs and the live fishes and the shrimp. So, you know, I think that kids are much more curious and resilient and adaptive than sometimes we give them credit for. And you really see that when you start traveling more with them. Really quickly, I should have asked you this earlier, but how old are your daughters now? They are six and nine. And how old were they when you started your travel adventure? It sounds like you've been traveling your whole life, obviously, but... Was there like a time period where you're like, okay, we can start traveling with them now? Or was it pretty much from birth? No. So for us, it definitely wasn't from birth. Um, we really only started in earnest when my youngest was three and a half and then my oldest was seven. Before that, we had done a little bit of traveling when my oldest was young, but there was like a good three and a half year stretch from when our youngest was born that we didn't it was just like a very busy time in my husband's business. Like not only did we not travel, but I don't think we took a vacation, like a break from work at all in that time period, which is kind of the part of the reason why we were like, oh man, we need to make a serious change. And that's kind of how this whole thing kicked off. So what has been your personal favorite travel destination? You know what? I'm going to scrap that. I don't want to know your personal favorite. I actually want to know like your family's favorite destination and why. One of them for sure was Dubai because it's a fascinating city. And I think the thing that makes Dubai such a great destination is that 
whatever you're into, that's the experience that you can have. So if you really just want to learn about the culture and the history, you can have that experience where you really delve deep into like the history of the region and you visit the various mosques and, you know, religious institutions. If you're very into luxury, you can have that, you know, you can go race Lamborghinis, you can stay at crazy high-end hotels, like eat thousand dollar ice cream sundaes, you know, you can enjoy that. If you're really into amusement parks and kiddie stuff, you can have that. If you're really into spas, you can do that. If you're a foodie, you can customize that experience. So I think just the fact that there's so much there makes it a really amazing travel destination for families. And just in general, like the whole place is set up to be very kid friendly. You know, we found that the kids were just really welcomed wherever we went, welcomed as opposed to tolerated. I think there's a big difference (laughs) when you're traveling with kids of like whether your kids are merely tolerated or if they're actually welcomed and you really sense that difference there. Um, And that was one of their favorites because like where else can you ski indoors? Only in Dubai. And let's just say you don't have the budget to go to Dubai. What's your family's favorite domestic destination? Yeah, so one place that we went recently that is definitely a budget destination, I would say, that we were surprised by how much fun we had, and not surprised because we thought it would be terrible, but just we just didn't know much about it, was Jacksonville, Florida. What? So, what? Um, yeah, <laughs> it was so much fun. Tell it's, me why. Okay, well, the food is great. There's a lot of like fun things for kids. There's this place called Sweet Pete's Candy Shop, which I don't know if you've ever watched the show The Profit on CNBC, but it's hosted by this guy, Marcus Limonis, who basically invests in different small businesses. So it was featured on that show. So Serge and I were kind of excited to go there. And it's like this huge candy land and you can take like candy making classes. There's beaches there. So we went surfing. Overall, the thing that I really enjoyed about it, especially when comparing to some of the bigger cities that we go to, is there was never a wait for anything. (laughs) So I remember um, we were going to have brunch at this one place on like a Saturday or Sunday morning. And I was asking my contact there like, oh, should we plan to get there a little early because of a wait? And it was like, literally, she didn't really understand what I meant. <laughs> like, what Like what do you mean, get there early? Like, what do you mean, a wait? I mean, really, every place we went, even the, the really popping places, you could be seated right away. And it's just like little things like that. And then also, it's fairly compact, so it's very quick to get from one end of the town to the other. So it just like made me realize like, wow, you know, sometimes going to a smaller city can be so much more enjoyable because it's less of those little stresses that add up of like, oh, we're trying to find parking. We got to wait this long for a table. We got to stand in line forever to get into this museum. It kind of eliminates all of that. And then you get to just enjoy the actual activities that you're doing. Excellent. Excellent. I'm literally making a list both in my head and on this piece of paper. We're going to link to all these places on the website, but I'm like, hmm, Jacksonville, maybe spring break. So obviously, besides topflightfamily.com, give me like one or two other resources that families can use for travel, whether it's a, you know, a hotel thing or something like a cool place to find things to do. Just two resources that you think are great for families trying to plan travel. I think one is definitely the Facebook group that I mentioned before, Black Kids Do Travel. It's just a really inspiring community and also you get a lot of ideas of where to go. The other resource that is, I mean, he's kind of the OG of travel blogging is The Points Guy. And that's just thepointsguy.com. And that site focuses primarily on how you can use credit card points and airline miles to stretch your dollar when you travel. Um, I have to admit, like, I am not a super expert at doing that. I'm still figuring it out. But besides the actual points and miles info, it's just a great resource to kind of keep up on what's going on in the travel world. And then on top of that, there are all these great airfare discount alert sites And I highly encourage you to subscribe to the email alerts. You'll probably get one a day from each of them, but it's just a great way to be on top of when airlines do sales on their fares because one tip for traveling on a budget is instead of deciding on a destination and then finding a flight to go there, instead monitor where the airfare is cheap hop on that airfare deal and then figure out the hotels and the itinerary later because that tends to be 
often the biggest chunk of travel budget for a family. And so if you can save on airfare, now suddenly like the entire trip has become a lot more affordable. I'm going to put all of the links to those resources on the website, which is fantastic. Carmen, I want to ask you one final question, and that is, we don't want people to listen to this episode or read the Cindy McCain headlines and think, wow, it's too dangerous to travel, or there's so many bad things that could go wrong for our family. What are the benefits of travel that keep you doing this and make you tell other people that they should do it as well? I think for me, the biggest benefit is I just believe that travel is a tremendous source of education and enrichment for kids. And also by starting to travel with kids when they're young, you really build their muscles, so to speak, like their travel muscles, both in terms of endurance of fighting through jet lag or learning to pull their own bag through the airport. There's physical things like that, but also just getting used to moving through the world and being perceived differently and maybe reacted to differently by different people and kind of learning to cope with that and being okay with that. I think those are all really important skills because When I think about the trips that we're doing with our kids now, I'm really excited about seeing what kind of travel they're going to do when they're adults. And then also in the meantime, like the tremendous amount of education and enrichment and exposure to different cultures and histories that travel can provide now. So it's really those a combination of those two for me. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I love to see my kids in different situations. And even if I can't afford to take them on an international trip, for example, I still love to take them to different neighborhoods or different restaurants where they can, you know, have at least a small kind of immersive experience in a different culture. And it helps them, I think, like you said, to... um to see how they're perceived in other cultures. And I think it's really very cool for them to see if they are a child of color in this country, to be in a country that's majority people of color, where they finally aren't the minority anymore. There's just so many ways that they can, you know, learn these lessons that's hard to learn from a textbook or from your parents saying X, Y, or Z. One last thing, actually. I know I just said I was going to ask, that was the last question, but I just thought of one more question (laughs) I wanted to ask you. And that is, you know, what would you say to somebody who is afraid to travel because they think they're going to be treated poorly? And I know a lot of people struggle with this. What would you say to them to help them get over that fear? You know, actually, I think what you just mentioned is tremendously useful, which is to try to, you know, hopefully (laughs) you're living in a place that has some different communities of different backgrounds, but to spend time in your hometown in a community that's different from your own. I will definitely say that when we went to Hong Kong, my girls were immediately at home. It was like they'd grown up there. Like they were so super comfortable moving through the city. And part of that is because it's very similar to New York. You know, it's like big city, tall skyscrapers. But I think also part of it was that, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of family here in New York. Most of my family's still in Hong Kong, but we spend a lot of time in Chinatown. And I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but I think it makes a big difference because we go to dim sum all the time. They're used to the Chinese ladies in the restaurant marveling over their hair and fawning over them and being curious and sometimes maybe going over the border a little bit in terms of personal space. So it's like these were not completely new experiences to them. So I think that if you're able to kind of immerse yourself in a different community, that's a great way to start also testing out like how are we perceived in maybe different communities? Not that it's necessarily Chinatown is not necessarily going to be exactly the same as going to Hong Kong, but it starts giving your family a little bit more of a feeling of comfort and ease in finding yourself in different kind of situations. I agree. And it's funny because my husband is always talking about, I mean, I didn't realize he thought about this until more recently when we had the conversation, but he's really adamant that our kids eat Spanish food. And Spanish food, you know, might seem like kind of romantic or, you know, you can get Spanish food at a lot of restaurants, but there's a lot of things about Spanish food that American kids might not like. You know, there's some flavors that are different. And we we eat a lot of Spanish style food in our house. And he's like, I really want them to when they go to Spain, they don't blink. They don't say, oh, I don't don't want to eat that. They're very comfortable. It's a very easy transition because they've been eating the food and food is often the gateway to understanding another culture, right? Um, So Carmen, tell everybody who's listening how they can find you and follow your travel adventures and stay in touch if they want to. 
So my blog is at topflightfamily.com. And if you click on any of the articles and you scroll down, there'll be a little sign up form that says get a free travel guide to items that every traveling family needs. So if you put in your email address, you're going to get that guide, but you're also going to be signed up for my weekly newsletter, which is a great way to keep up on all the different types of content we put out because I'm... um, very multimedia. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, we're very active on Instagram. So that's mostly images. I'm starting to dip my toe more into YouTube. So we're starting to do more video content. So depending on, you know, everyone has a different style of consuming travel content. You might like video more, you might like to read, but basically from that newsletter, you're going to get updates on all of that. And then you can choose which is more of your style. So I think that's the best way to keep up with what we're doing. Thank you so much for being with us on My American Melting Pot. Thank you for having me, Lori. It was fun. So who's thinking about booking a trip to Jacksonville, Florida now? Panama? Dubai, maybe? I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I love traveling, and now Carmen just made me realize that taking my multiracial, multicultural, bilingual family on the road isn't just enlightening for us. We're doing other people a favor by expanding their notions of what family travel looks like. Mental note, I have to make sure I post all our travel photos on Instagram and Facebook to celebrate diversity. Oh, wait. Hashtag celebrate diversity 2019. Seriously, though, the more families that look like mine are seen and normalized, the sooner the Cindy McCains of the world won't see us as abnormal and unmatching. So see if you can find that great travel deal. Take that trip you've been thinking about. Go see the world with your family. And please, send me a postcard from wherever you land. Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of My American Melting Pot. This is the last episode of our first season. We did it! Woohoo! Now, we're going to take a little break as we gear up for Season 2. But in the meantime, we'd love it if you told us what you thought about Season 1. Who are your favorite guests? What would you like to hear more of? Please share your thoughts and ideas with us. You can tweet at me, at Lori Tharps, or leave a message on the blog, myamericanmeltingpot.com. The blog is also where you'll find the show notes for this episode with links to Top Flight Family and all of the awesome travel resources mentioned during the show. Season two won't launch until April, but that doesn't mean you have to live without Melting Pot content for that long. Visit myamericanmeltingpot.com because I post new content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can also sign up for the My American Melting Pot newsletter for updates about the show and other Melting Pot news and information. Sign up is easy and it's right there on the blog. Or you can just follow me on social, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where I post daily Melting Pot goodies. And here's my final ask for the show. If you can, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it is for other people to find the show. So I'm thanking you in advance. Please do what you can. Episode 8 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, where everybody wishes they were on vacation, but they're not. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. Our PR and marketing intern is Darian Muga, and our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you so much for listening to My American Melting Pot. And thank you for supporting us in our first season. And as always, remember to live your life in color. <laughs>